0: You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Good morning. Uh, if we've not met before, uh, my name is Matt Luloyan. I'm one of the pastors here at Liberty Church. Uh, it's an honor to, um, to be with you this morning, to open up God's Word with you this morning. Uh, We had last week, uh, after our service, I know many of you were able to stick around and be there for that, uh, a ministry kickoff, a fall ministry kickoff. Um, So thanks to all of you who made that happen. Uh, Thanks to all of you who stayed for that. Uh, There's a lot of new and exciting things coming uh, this fall, uh, including a new technology platform that we've begun to use, uh, an app called Church Center, and we've switched from what we used to call Liberty Connect. There's a different system that we use to do our registrations and online giving and all kinds of things like that. So if you weren't able to make it last week and you have questions about that, you're having trouble um, getting shifted over to the new system, please also reach out and let us know. Uh, We'd love to sit down with you and help walk through anything that's not easy or intuitive already to figure out um, and help you learn how to sign up for things like the Incovenant class uh, or Liberty 101 or other kinds of things we've got going on this fall, like a men's retreat coming up in a few weeks. Um, So that's just one additional uh, announcement I wanted to put on your radar. Uh, If you have Bibles, uh, we're continuing our study in the book of Nehemiah this morning, and we'll be in Nehemiah chapter 2, the black hardcover Bibles that are under some of the seats in front of you there that Karen mentioned, uh, page 398 is where uh, you'll find uh, Nehemiah chapter 2. And as you're turning there, uh, I want to begin this morning by quoting to you two sets of lyrics. The first uh, is from an 1875 poem entitled Invictus, by a man named William Ernest Henley. Uh, And he writes this, Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll." I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Now fast forward about 130 years to the 2006 Grammy Award winner for best country song, a song entitled Jesus Take the Wheel. Carrie Underwood sings, Jesus take the wheel, take it from my hands, because I can't do this on my own. I'm letting go. Very different lyrics, very different time periods. Uh, These lyrics illustrate two very different perspectives on the world, do they not? I can, I can't. Taking charge, letting go. And when we put them side by side, it evokes an important question that has perplexed and frustrated people for generations. And the question is this, are the actions and outcomes of our lives determined by God or are they determined by us? Are the outcomes and actions of our lives determined by God or are they determined by us? And if you're inclined to rush a quick response to that question this morning, I'm going to ask you to slow down. Slow down and to really consider today the interaction between God's work and ours. In the Christian faith, though reductionistic answers are given at times, the real answer to this question is complicated. And we quickly come to find that there are some really big ditches for us to avoid on either side of the road. So on one side, we as Christians, Christians are those who depend upon the work of God. We know that we need Him to act powerfully in the world, and we cry out for Him to do so. But at times, That can result in passivity, in hanging back, in waiting for some kind of grand gesture or some kind of miracle to take place for anything to happen. When in reality, God's primary means of acting in the world are often everyday ordinary actions through normal people in normal circumstances. And so I'll say this, as you drive home later on today or wherever it is you drive after this, please... For the love of God, do not hop on 15 or 581, pray Jesus take the wheel, and then let go of your steering wheel. That will end very badly for you and for many other people. Keep driving today with your hands on the steering wheel as though arriving home actually depends upon you, because in a very real way it does. On the other side, the ditch on the other side of the road, There are those of us who have no problem taking ownership, taking action, stepping into roles and responsibilities in life. But in so doing, how much might we have begun to live as functional atheists or functional agnostics? You heard the agnosticism in Henley's poem, perhaps, when I read it. I thank whatever gods may be. But even those of us who would say that we believe in God... And acknowledge God, we also are prone to live as though He doesn't exist or if His existence is inconsequential. When the foundation of our faith rests on the reality that God is there, that His presence makes all the difference. And for someone like myself or like you or like William Ernest Henley, who had absolutely no say as to when we entered this world, for someone who has so little say over when we leave this world, It is utterly ignorant, utterly arrogant to claim that you are the master of your fate and that you are the captain of your soul. So is it up to God? Is it up to us? Nehemiah is one of many places in Scripture where we see the interplay between God's work and ours. And though it will be a thread throughout the entire book, here in chapter 2, we get a great glimpse into this relationship between the way we'll refer to it the rest of our morning – our plans, and God's providence. Plans and providence. So I invite you to listen now with open ears to this book that we love. This is Nehemiah chapter 2, beginning in verse 1 and reading all the way through verse 20. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king... And if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me given me to the governors of the province beyond the river. That's the formal name of the province that exists to the west of the Euphrates River, the far western edge of the Persian Empire at the time. That they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. (laughs) Verse 9. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, And I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night uh, by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate. And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool. But there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall. And I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Verse 17. Then I said to them, "'You see the trouble we are in, "'how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. "'Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem "'that we may no longer suffer derision.'" And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, And we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Guide us, we ask, O God, by your word and by your spirit, that in your light we may see light, that in your truth find freedom, and that in your will we might discover your peace. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. So, this text, as you perhaps heard, weaves in and out of Nehemiah's plans and God's providence. Uh, But in order to take a closer look, we're first going to break those two things apart and look at them separately, and then we'll seek to put it back together uh, by the end. So, first, what does this text teach us about the role of our plans? What's the role of our plans? Chapter 2 begins, as you heard, with an exchange between Nehemiah and the Persian king Artaxerxes. It's the month of Nisan, uh, which is late March, early April. So about four months have passed since Nehemiah heard the news about Jerusalem that we read about back in chapter 1. What exactly has been going on for those four months, we don't know. Uh, Nehemiah, it seems, has been continuing to mourn and to pray And here now, for the first time, his grief spills out of him. His grief becomes visible to the king as he's serving him. And it leads to this key moment in verse 4 where the king says to Nehemiah, Hey, what is it, Nehemiah, that you are requesting? And Nehemiah prays. And then Nehemiah responds, I'm going to build a wall, and I'm going to make Persia pay for it. (laughs) You'll get there if you haven't gotten there already. Okay, and let me just also, not to get too far off track this morning, uh, it's important to address something here as we get into this series, because it's going to come up. It just did. Uh, If you're familiar with Nehemiah, you know that the great task he undertakes is to rebuild the walls and the gates of Jerusalem. I'm very aware, as I'm sure you are, that wall building is a very contentious political topic in our cultural moment. Um, So, as you discuss this with one another in your Bible studies, as you discuss this with one another over meals, let's make a pact right now that we're all going to behave. Okay? Everybody behave. And specifically, here's what I mean. Uh, If you think that building a southern border wall is a good strategy to stop illegal immigration, that's fine. Just don't try to force the book of Nehemiah to be your biblical basis for thinking that. It's not there. It's not there. If you see it there, it's because you're reading it back into this text, which is a dangerous and wrong way to read any part of Scripture, not just this book. And as much as some American Christians love to do this, Americans are not the Israelites. America is not the promised land. America is not Jerusalem. And all of this book is playing out centuries before the fulfillment of Jesus, which we should consider what the work that Jesus has done when we think about how nations interact with each other. Jesus is the one who breaks down dividing walls of hostility. We should at least consider that in our grid when we think about walls. On the other hand, if you think building a southern border wall is a bad move, that's fine. But don't read that view into Nehemiah either. We're gonna read here in this text how good and necessary this wall is. For Jerusalem and for the returned exiles, Even further than that, this wall is part of the very redemption and salvation of God. So be careful, if that's you, that out of your distaste for a wall on the American border, you find yourself now unable to appreciate and to celebrate what is is a good act of God that is part of the salvation of his people in history. Fair? Can we behave when we do this throughout the fall in Bible studies? Can we do that? I trust that we can. trust that we can. Now, Nehemiah doesn't actually say he's going to build a wall and make Persia pay for it. That's me just saying that. What he does say, what he does say illustrates just how much planning and effort he has put into making all of this happen. A few specifics. Notice the tact and the wisdom and even the shrewdness of his words. It seems like Nehemiah has used these four months to think really deeply about the words he's going to use if and when he's given the chance to appeal to the king. And so when the king says, what are you requesting? The first words out of his mouth, verse 3, let the king live forever. It's an expression of loyalty. He's about to make a request that could easily be viewed as politically subversive or even treasonous. Certainly one that would be threatening, could be threatening to the king. And Persian kings, like many ancient monarchs, they ruled with great suspicion toward anything that had the whiff of rebellion. And so Nehemiah, right out of the gate, immediately establishes and asserts his loyalty. Let the king live forever. He also refers to Jerusalem as, quote, the place of my father's graves. In other words, he makes this a personal plea, not a political one. And and it endears, it seemingly endears him to the king. It strikes a note of sympathy with the king rather than a note of suspicion. Like if he were to say something like, the great fortress and the great citadel of my people is in ruins, the king would be like, well, hang on a second. What's, what good is it for me to actually help you rebuild that then? But he says, no, 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 king, this is my place. This is my place. This is the soil in which the, the bones of my ancestors lie. This is my home. It's personal. Notice here also that Nehemiah never mentions Jerusalem by name to the king. It's just the city that's in Judah. It's just the city of his father's graves. It's a really shrewd move. Uh, One scholar calls it a master stroke of diplomacy. Uh, Because remember, this is the same king who just a few years prior shut down a rebuilding effort. We read in Ezra chapter 4 that the reason that Artaxerxes shut it down then is because upon searching the historical records about Jerusalem, he saw how dominant a city it used to be and how much then of a potential threat it might be, it would be, if it were rebuilt. And so Nehemiah here makes an intentional choice not to mention Jerusalem by name, and thereby bring those historical records right back to the forefront of the king's mind. At the same time, he doesn't deceive the king. He's really honest in verse 5 about his plans. He's going to rebuild the city. He doesn't say, I'm just going to go check it out and see how the people are doing there and the condition of the walls, he says, I'm actually going to go rebuild the city. So all told, these are masterfully planned words to request a major thing from a pagan king who really owes him nothing. Nehemiah has been planning far more than just his words, though. He knows specifically what he needs from the king. And so the king asks how long he'll be gone, and he's able to give him a time. He asks then for letters to the governors of the Persian province where Jerusalem is. Uh, He knows that as regents of the Persian Empire, those leaders are going to be suspicious unless he has some kind of objective, physical proof that the king is behind this, that the king has approved this. He also asks for timber uh, to build the gates, to build the walls, to build his own house in Jerusalem. So clearly, Nehemiah has been doing a lot more than just praying. He's been planning. And when the moment comes, he makes an informed, specific request that makes it obvious he's counted the cost of this endeavor. He's not entering into it lightly and without counting the cost. And this same kind of careful planning is evident when he then arrives in Jerusalem a little bit later on in our text. He first does a thorough inspection of the condition of the city and its walls. And the detail that we have here in verses 11 through 16 That detail remains to this day some of the best historical records we have about the status and the structure and even the topography of what Jerusalem was like in the mid-5th century B.C. Nehemiah, we read, does this inspection at night. Why does he do that? To keep his plan secret from two groups of people. One, his enemies, and two, his fellow Jews in Jerusalem. Now, his enemies, we we get that. Keeping that from his enemies, we get. And already in verse 10, we've met the two primary representatives of those enemies. They'll show up again later on throughout this book, Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite. Knowing that his work is going to be opposed, Nehemiah does as much of it as he can secretly and quietly in order to give it the best chance of success before alerting his enemies to the particulars. We understand that part, Why keep it from his fellow Jews? Why only take a few men with him at this inspection? Why, verse 12, tell no one what God has put in his heart to do for Jerusalem? Because at this moment, the Jews are a discouraged people. And even more than that, as verse 17 puts it, they are a derided people. They're suffering derision. Many of them have lived their entire lives in the shame of being a conquered, defenseless city with only a fraction of its former glory. And moreover, if these Jews in Jerusalem had been part of the rebuilding efforts that were referenced in Ezra 4, they're even more discouraged, they're even more cynical because of how that project met opposition and was so quickly shut down and stopped. You have to walk carefully, wisely, slowly, intentionally, with people who have been discouraged or have become cynical or people who have been shamed. You have to walk really slowly and carefully. You can't float half-baked ideas. Naked enthusiasm that lacks substance will only be received as naive and will ruin your credibility as a leader. All of these things, by the way, are things I found very true and transferable lessons as a pastor and a church planter in a part of the United States that has a lot of churched and dechurched people. You have to walk carefully and slowly with people who are discouraged and shamed and have become cynical. And so Nehemiah does all his homework first. He checks the feasibility of things first. Before he runs his mouth and enthusiasm to a big group of people, people he's going to need to rally behind him if this work has any chance of success, he first drills down and hones in on his plan as much as he possibly can. And then when he does finally share the plan with his fellow Jews, verse 18, they perceive that he has done all of that, that he's made all of those efforts, and they do rally behind him. So back to the original question. With all of these factors then, certainly we can look at this rebuilding effort as a triumph of Nehemiah's careful planning, right? Kind of. That's part of it, for sure. But woven throughout these same verses is Nehemiah's own recognition that all of it is for nothing but for the hand of God upon him. And so second, what does Nehemiah 2 show us about the role of God's providence? If that's the role of our plans, let's talk about the role of God's providence. And first, let's define the word. What is providence? The Holman Bible Dictionary, I think, did a great job of capturing this. It says this God, from whom nothing is hidden and whose power is surpassingly great, wisely oversees and sovereignly controls all creation. In so doing, he attends not only to apparently momentous events and people, but also to those that seem both mundane and trivial. Indeed, So all encompassing is God's attention to events within creation that nothing happens by chance. That nothing happens by chance. That's providence. That's what we mean when we say the word providence. And there's a refrain in this passage that's key to our understanding that God is the real hero of this story and of the book of Nehemiah. And it shows up both in verse 8 and then again in verse 18. Verse 8 For the good hand of my God was upon me. And then verse 18. The hand of my God had been upon me for good. Why is Nehemiah successful? Why are all of his plans and preparations and the labors of his hands ultimately fruitful and effective? It's because the providential hand of God is on him. And we see the ripple effects of that throughout these verses. Right from the get-go, God moves the heart of the king of Persia, the king who was formerly opposed To this same rebuilding effort. And even though Nehemiah is shrewd and very careful and wise and tactful with his words, the king is not an idiot. He knows that the only city in Judah that Nehemiah could possibly be referring to is Jerusalem. Now, maybe the king's heart is moved because in the Persian Empire at this point in time it was things were growing more and more unstable. Egypt was becoming increasingly a threat. And so perhaps the prospect of a fortified city on the western edge of the Persian Empire as a buffer between Egypt and Persia had more appeal now than it did a few years prior. But even if that's what's going on in history behind the scenes, even if that's what the king is thinking when he gives this answer, that too is the providence of God. God is the one who orchestrates events and raises up nations and topples nations and leaders in ways that serve to accomplish his massive cosmic work. In the first few centuries AD, for example, the gospel exploded throughout the Mediterranean world. And it did so in part because for years earlier, the Roman Empire had been building roads throughout all of these villages and towns that made travel so much faster. And so the gospel exploded because of Roman roads, in part. Last century, the church in China exploded, not in spite of persecution, but specifically because they began to be persecuted by the Chinese government. If the the Chinese government had left Christians alone, there was a real chance that that flame would have been snuffed out completely in China. The few Christians that were there may not be there anymore. But what the Chinese government did when they persecuted those few remaining Christians was to pour gasoline on the fire, and now the church in China is huge. Artaxerxes here is just another in a line of Persian kings through whom God works powerfully to be generous and protective and helpful to his exiled people. So almost 100 years prior, Cyrus conquered Babylon and let the exiles go, at least a number of them. Darius, another Persian king, funds the rebuilding of the temple. And now Artaxerxes lets Nehemiah return to build the gates and the walls. We might miss this if we're too familiar with the story. History paints these men as absolute and often ruthless rulers. Like if all we know these Persian kings from is the lens of scripture, we might get the idea they're kind of friendly. They're buddy-buddy. That is not the case at all. They conquered and killed nations. They killed tons of people. But they become allies and aids to the people of God. Why? Because the good hand of God is upon them. And it's no less incredible that God moves the hearts of the Jews in Jerusalem to rally behind Nehemiah as quickly as they do. Think about that. Shame-filled, derided, cynical, discouraged people don't jump on board with a plan that fast. It doesn't happen apart from the hand of God. Derek Kidner says it this way, so total a response from such a group was as miraculous as that of Artaxerxes we see maybe the miracle of God moving the king's heart. Do we see the equal miracle of God moving the hearts of all the people of Jerusalem? But lest we miss this, back up this morning just a little bit more to the very last line of chapter one, where Nehemiah says, now I was cupbearer to the king. Do you have any idea how much of the grace and mercy and kindness, how much of the providence of God is packed into that little line, that little phrase right there. How much God has already been at work for Nehemiah to even be in a position like this at this moment. Cupbearer to the king, it's a servant role, but it's a really important one. It's a high office with regular, almost constant access to one of the most powerful men in the world at the time. And the king even entrusts his life to Nehemiah Nehemiah, as the cupbearer, is the one who first tastes everything the king is about to drink to make sure it's not poisoned. If you're familiar at all with the story of Esther in the Old Testament, who also was a person instrumentally used by God to change the heart of a Persian king, there's a famous line in her story that you're perhaps familiar with where her uncle Mordecai tells her, who knows, perhaps you're in Persia for exactly this moment to influence the king this way. For such a time as this, is the exact quote from the book of Esther. We we maybe see that in, in Esther's story. Do we see that it's equally true for Nehemiah? And though it will likely never be as grandiose and never be as large scale, it is just as true for you and for me. How much of the providence of God, how much of his providential care has he already poured out on you for you to be sitting in the seat that you're sitting in this morning? Let's not kid ourselves when we think about the providence of God and all that your life, my life, our lives have entailed to bring us to where we are today. In real life and real time, God's providence is not all rainbows and butterflies. Remember Joseph? Remember Joseph? Centuries earlier, Joseph was in Egypt at a key moment. Why? We can answer that question from a lot of different perspectives. One, because he was an arrogant, tactless, turd of a little brother just running his mouth to his older brothers. Two, because his brothers were jealous and murderous. Three, because his dad, Jacob, did the one thing that every parent knows they should not do and pick a favorite out of your kids. Why was he in Egypt? All of those things are part of it, but... In the providence of God, he was actually in Egypt because at a key moment, he would then deliver the Israelite people and not only the Israelites, but the Egyptians from a famine that would have otherwise been catastrophic and killed hundreds of thousands of people. Nehemiah is cupbearer to the king. Think about this. Because God's people have grievously sinned against him and rejected him and were conquered and were exiled and were subjugated as a consequence of all of that. But somehow in details that we are never given in Scripture, he ends up favored by the king of Persia and called into service in one of the highest roles in the land. So that, in a key moment, he might then be a primary human instrument of the redemptive, faithful, promise-keeping work of God to bring his people back from exile and to cover over the shame that they had been feeling for generations. That is the providence of God. And so where has God, in his providence, placed you? Our tendency, my tendency, is to become restless and discontent. Restless in your job, perhaps, in the size of your home or your bank account. Restless in relationships. They get hard, and so you just want to start over. Restless in your church community, perhaps. Instead, begin to perceive the providence of God that has brought you to where you are. Instead, live with open eyes and ears for moments like these where all of the background of what God's been doing in your life up to this point leads to a key moment that is served up right in front of you. I mean, Nehemiah doesn't even have to ask. The king puts, puts it on a plate for him. What is it that you want, Nehemiah? Maybe like Nehemiah, for you and I, that will be part of some massive history-altering work that God is doing in the world. Maybe, far more likely, it will be many thousands of small moments in your life where you faithfully step into the work that God has prepared in advance for you to do. And if, out of restlessness and discontentment, you and I are so preoccupied trying to engineer a life that feels significant, that feels grandiose, we will miss inevitably what is already inherently and immensely significant about the place that God in his providence has already put us. Why do you and I live in central Pennsylvania, the Harrisburg region, or Lebanon for a number of you? Uh, I love it here. Maybe you do too. I think we can agree it's not exactly the epicenter of the world. Why am I here? I don't know. I don't know, other than to be a husband to Shay, to be a dad to my three daughters, to be a neighbor to the people of this region who were born in a similar enough time frame and similar enough locale to where I am now, and to be a pastor to you, the people of this church. On a large scale, there is nothing grandiose about that. But there are moments, each one of them grand and incredible in its own right, where it is overwhelmingly clear that this is exactly what I am supposed to do. To pause and to pray for someone. To have a hard but necessary conversation with someone and to trust the results to God. To encourage someone. And to to know that in some supernatural, mysterious way that far exceeds me and my own abilities, it's going to be used by God to sustain their weary soul. So let's bring all of this back together. In everyday life, on the ground, God's work and our work go hand in hand. But there is an essential primacy and an ultimacy to God's work. And it's most succinctly spelled out in the bookends here of verse 18. And I'll summarize it like this. Because God's hand is upon you for good, strengthen the work of God. Strengthen your hands for the good work. Because God's hand is upon you for good, strengthen your hands for the good work. Nehemiah knew that God's hand was upon him because of the favor that he was given in the eyes of the king, because of the success that he was granted in rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. He writes this book, this part of the book, retrospectively looking back on that and saying, the good hand of my God was on me. That's why it happened. What I would say to you this morning, church, is that you have something even better. You know, we know, the good hand of God is on us because God sent his own son, Jesus Christ. And through faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we are no longer slaves because of our sin. We are now adopted into the family of God. We are no longer subject to the shame and to the derision of sin. We instead now, have access to and are given the favor and the smiling face of God upon us. And so we strengthen our hands for the work. We plan and we labor and we exert ourselves with all diligence to do the work that God has providentially laid out for us to do. And as you do this, this will cultivate both in you as it does in me, perpetual discomfort and perpetual comfort. And I can do no better this morning than to invite you into both perpetual discomfort and perpetual comfort. The discomfort is this. In the times when we're active, taking the bull by the horns, getting it done, stepping into roles and responsibilities that are laid out before us, there's a real risk that we can minimize quickly our desperate need for God. In the moments where you're just productively cranking it out, cranking through life, You've got to stop and ask yourself, is God really of consequence? Is his existence really making an on-the-ground difference in my life right now? And in the moments where we are asking God to work, where we know we need him, but we might find ourselves paralyzed, there's a risk in those moments that we are actually minimizing our responsibility to step into something. To not become passive and wait for a miraculous answer, but to pursue ordinary, everyday expressions of faithfulness with everything that is in us. There's a perpetual kind, as you're probably even feeling right now, a perpetual kind of discomfort from always having to check ourselves and our motives and our approach to life because of this interplay between God's work and ours. Having said that, there is no other way that we would ever want to live. Why not? Because there's perpetual comfort in knowing that you cannot mess up God's plan for the world. His providence means that though we can and have and will make the wrong decisions, that we will at times go against his stated will, we do not have the power in ourselves to ruin his ultimate plan the perpetual comfort of God's providence is this. I'm not in control of the world. That I'm not alone even at the top of the chart, the organizational chart of my own life. And there's a kind of peace and comfort that we will only come to find if we're convinced that we are not the masters of our faith, that we are not the captains of our soul, but that we belong body and soul into the good hand of God. There's even more perpetual comfort in knowing that then our lives and our work matters. That what we do has impact. That our hands are the vessels of God's own hand upon us. That we are not robots or cogs in God's machine, but that we're loved and we're usable instruments, vessels of his grace and his truth and his own love flowing through us. And so church, in the grandiose moments and in the mundane ones, strengthen your hands for the work because in Jesus, the good hand of God is upon you. Because the finished work of Jesus, may you know the favor, may you know the smiling face of God upon you and may that embolden you to step wholeheartedly into the work that God has providentially prepared for you to do. Amen. Let me pray for us. God, we are who we are. We are where we are solely by your providential care and grace and kindness to us. And as we think about our lives and all that they've entailed, the joys and the sorrows of them that have led us to this moment, help us to see that you have been in that and that we are not left to be in control even of our own lives. Give us confidence to step into this life that is a gift to step into the labors and the work that is before us, which are gifts. Pray that we would only have more confidence to step into this life because we have that much more confidence in what Jesus has done and that we know your favor and your good hand is upon us because of what we now come to this table to remember and to anticipate and to rejoice in. That you, Jesus, gave up your own life so that we might be forgiven of our sin, that we might be adopted into the family of God, that we might not have our sins counted against us, that your smiling face and your favor might rest upon us. That is solely because of what you have done for us, Jesus. So help us to taste it, to perceive it more deeply this morning, even as we ask for your grace to be sent back out into the world that you love. And we pray this all in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.